This is episode number 22 of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Let's get started. Well, welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Kevin Morris, and I want to thank you so much for joining in for our 22nd episode on the Better Bible Reading Podcast. And hopefully you have seen what the title of the show is. I'm pretty excited to talk about it. I know it might raise some eyebrows, uh, but the title of this episode is this, What Bible Interpretation Has in Common with the American Government. I promise this is not one of those clickbait uh, YouTube videos where it's a title to allure you, and then once you click on the title, it has nothing to do with what the title was, or you see it all the time on YouTube videos where it'll show some kind of uh, title image of the video, and it is just trying to entice you. Well, it might sound like that's what I'm doing with this episode title here, uh, but I promise you, um, I do have um, hopefully a good uh, correlation between Bible interpretation and the American government, and I think that it is actually extremely helpful for us to think about. But first, let me offer a very sincere thank you. I mentioned this last week, but just another report of growth on this podcast. We are continuing to see more and more downloads, and I am so thankful for that because it means people are listening to this show, and um, so far the numbers have not dwindled, so that must mean that people who are listening to it uh, care somewhat about uh, what is being said. That certainly means uh, a whole lot to me, um, so thank you for that. Last time I reported on this a week ago, I had said we had finally cleared the, the 500 mark, 500 unique downloads on this podcast, and now we are almost pretty soon going to be pushing the 600 mark already. So that's pretty exciting. Um, so just a, just a thank you, uh, to all of you listening. Um, that wouldn't be possible without you listening. There would not be a podcast without you listening because I would have stopped a long time ago, but I'm so excited for, uh, just seeing the Lord grow this and, uh, seeing all of you, um, with your interaction with me, um, that you're enjoying this, that you're benefiting from it, that it's making you think, and that is certainly uh, what I am trying to do. So today, we're talking about what Bible interpretation has in common with the American government. First thing that we need to deal with when we're thinking about this is to ask the question, the simple question, the elementary question, what exactly is Bible interpretation? What is Bible interpretation? You hear it a lot, in Bible study context, um, you hear it in the let's go around the room and talk about what this verse means to me, right? You probably have been in that kind of a situation at uh, one point or another, uh, but we're asking what is Bible interpretation? And uh, I think just a super simple elementary answer is this. What is Bible interpretation? And the answer, seeking to find and understand what the Bible means. That's it. You don't have to overcomplicate it. You don't have to uh, dress it up to be 
um, more complex than that. Now, the process is a whole nother animal. But in just in terms of what Bible interpretation is, it's simply to seek and f- to find and understand what the Bible means. Uh, in theology, we have a fancy word um, that we use when we're talking about Bible interpretation, and that is hermeneutics. If you've been in Bible college before, or even if you just are watching videos on YouTube, or maybe uh, in some type of a Sunday school class, you've heard the word hermeneutics, and that is just the branch of biblical studies that seeks to find and apply um, Bible interpretation, find the interpretation of the word, of what's being said. A good example of where to go to and really where that word as a Greek word transliterated into English and that means just taking a Greek word and moving it into the English language with English letters instead of actually um, interpreting, or I'm sorry, instead of translating the word, um, the difference between translation and transliteration um, would be the word hermeneutics. And you see the word hermeneutics in, for one example, Luke 24. So this is the very end of Luke's gospel. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. And in Luke chapter 24, Luke gives the account of Jesus' resurrection. And one of the um, very popular passages in there is um, when these disciples are traveling on a road. They're on the road to Emmaus. And when they're on this road... Jesus himself comes alongside them and starts talking to them. And it is a very uh, kind of ironic uh, point in the Bible because uh, they don't recognize Jesus. And he's asking them where they're going and what's been going on. And they look at him as if he is totally out of touch with uh, with developments in the nation because they say, I mean, haven't you heard this man, Jesus, has just been uh, crucified and now we don't know what to do? And basically, long story short, uh, one of the things that happens is as Jesus continues to talk to them, he actually shows them that while they thought he was the one that had no idea what had happened, they were actually the ones that had no idea what had happened because they were walking around uh, miserable, depressed, in a, a defeatist attitude because their Savior had been crucified and all their hopes and dreams were shattered. But actually, he had been raised from the dead, and there was no reason for them to be sad whatsoever. They had all the reason to be joyful beyond all comparison because their Savior had defeated death and risen again to life. And he says this to them about this time. He says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, here's where that idea of hermeneutics comes in. Verse 27 of Luke 24. Memorize that. Mark it down. This is a very important verse in the Bible. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There's that word, hermeneutics, and it is translated in the English as our word, interpreted. He interpreted, he engaged in hermeneutics, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So there's a very uh, simple but powerful example of Bible interpretation happening. So notice that it wasn't just enough that these disciples knew a thing or two about Moses and all the prophets. That's just a shorthand way of uh, describing the Old Testament. So basically what Jesus did was he opened up the Old Testament to them and he interpreted to them the scriptures. So, and and this is important because these disciples were not ignorant in terms of the Old Testament. They grew up hearing the Old Testament, memorizing it, and although they knew the content, they didn't know the right meaning of it. They didn't have the right interpretation of it. So Jesus gives them the right interpretation of it. This is an example, really important one, totally different conversation, but this is an important example of Christ-centered biblical interpretation because what Jesus does is he shows the Christ-centeredness of the Old Testament. That's what he's doing right here in Luke 24, verse 27. He interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, the Christ-centeredness of the Old Testament. So there's an example of hermeneutics. There's an example of Bible interpretation, seeking to find and understand what the Bible means. They knew what the Bible said, but they didn't understand what it meant, the significance of it. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was interpreting to them the Bible. So very important for us to understand just as a simple kind of ground level grasp of Bible interpretation. We're trying to get to the meaning of the Bible. That's what we're after. That's what it's all about. Now, one thing that really matters for us, um, not only because of the fact that we live 2,000 plus years after um, the time of Christ, but also when we think about philosophy. Here's an issue when it comes to Bible interpretation is that we can't shed off the presuppositions and worldviews that we have. This is a big kind of philosophical conversation um, that we could have at this point. Um, we don't have to go into all of that, at least on this episode. Totally would love to, especially when we think about the Bible and culture and how everything interacts with one another. Um, but for now, just something that we should know Something that we have to know is that presuppositions and worldviews can either help or hurt seeking the meaning of the Bible. So, what exactly does that mean? Well, you've grown up in a particular context. I've grown up in a particular context. You had parents that were either blue-collar parents or white-collar parents. You have a certain 
culture that you were um, in throughout your childhood and even right now. You have a certain denomination that you're affiliated with in Christianity. You have a particular workplace. You have either a married life or a non-married life. You have children or you don't have children. All these categories produce in us a worldview, a set of assumptions that we have about life, about meaning, about reality. And it is so important for us to understand that we don't shed those, we don't rid ourselves of those the minute that we pick up the Bible and start trying to find meaning. In fact, we, without even trying to sometimes, because it's just ingrained in who we are, will regularly read our own worldviews and presuppositions into any given text of the Bible. Here's an example of that. When we read Genesis chapter 1, God's account of creating the heavens and the earth, what kind of interaction you have had with science, with the idea of evolution, all of that is going to play into how you understand Genesis 1. What kind of interaction you've had with those terms is going to have some bearing on the meaning of Genesis 1 for you, the interpretation of Genesis 1. That's just a simple example. Or another example that perhaps could hit a lot closer to home is when you read in the Bible for children to be subject to their parents children to give honor to their parents, to be subject to their parents. Now, growing up, you may have had good parents or you may have had not so good parents. That's going to have some bearing on your interaction with that verse. Or wives submit to your husbands. There's another example. Um, all of these things hit close to home. They They touch on who we are. They touch on the view of the world, the view of reality that we have. And that's something that we can't escape. We don't suddenly go into a neutral position. We're not allowed to suddenly not be biased anymore uh, when we read those texts, when we try to understand what they mean. We carry all of that with us. We have a big bag full of presuppositions that we carry with us, that we drag along with us when we read the Bible. That is very important for us to understand. But, you know, the question behind Bible interpretation, what is Bible interpretation, is normally further um, towards those kind of hot topic issues that wives submit to your husbands, children be subject to your parents, or even examples of God as father or the idea of love and wrath or judgment, you know, all of those things. Um that's really where we're trying to look at, if we can all be honest. When we're trying to understand Bible interpretation, we're not necessarily trying to be involved in this, like, high academic pursuit. What we really want to know is what's the significance of this particular passage, this particular verse, this particular book. So that's important for us to understand as well. Now, 
How exactly does this have anything to do with the American government, you might ask? And I'm glad you asked because that's what this episode is all about. When it comes to the American government and the political landscape um, of today, 2019, um, it's important for us to know that we live in the aftermath of a philosophical um, view of reality called postmodernism. Postmodernism was a lot more influential in our society back in the 80s and, and 90s, but we live um, kind of in the post of postmodernism or post-postmodernism, if we can say that. And the effects of it are, I think, strikingly recognizable um, if we are willing to think about it for any length of time. Now, the way that this intersects with the American government is because the American government, and when I say government, I don't certainly, or I don't just mean um, the current uh, dominating political party, but I mean when you look at the American government in any political race, in any election, in any conversation, um, when you turn on C-SPAN, I don't know if anybody even watches that channel. It's normally extremely boring, but it is on there. If you have one of those, it's one of those channels that you never watch, but it comes with your package deal probably with DirecTV or something like that. These questions are floating around. Questions of reality, questions of the world, and questions of interpretation. So when we look at the Bible, there is a similarity, and that is this. The Bible is, if we want to put it this way, the governing document of Christianity. I'm using that term loosely because I don't want to be uh, misunderstood. Uh, but for now, let's just call it the, gov- the governing document of Christianity. But in the uh, American government, there's also a governing document. We call this our Constitution. Constitution is that governing document for our country. One of the phrases that you hear a lot in political conversations is the phrase called a living document. I don't know how many of you have been following um, the appointing of new Supreme Court judges. But one of the things that always comes up, um, especially in the last uh, couple uh, presidents that we've had um, in appointing a uh, Supreme Court judge, is the question of what kind of reader they are of the Constitution. And that is, I think, so important um, because what the what it's really asking is this: How do they interpret the Constitution? And you can almost assume down to a T. And it's kind of sad because honestly, 
um, Supreme Court judges aren't really supposed to be identified first as Republican or Democrat. They're supposed to be basically as neutral as possible. But you can imagine that a Republican president is going to appoint a um, Supreme Court judge who is going to be Republican in nature or our popular phrase today, conservative. And the um, same can be true for a Democratic president is going to appoint one who is liberal in their concept of politics. So follow with me here because the big issue in all of this is the issue of interpretation. In this case, in the government's case, how somebody is going to rule – how somebody is going to give their interpretation of the Constitution. That's what it all boils down to. And you hear this popular phrase quite often, um, that the new way of reading the Constitution is to view it as a living document. Now, it's very popular um, – when you're looking up what exactly does that mean is to understand this as the claim that there's kind of a, a dynamic meaning in the constitution. The constitution is not static. It's not a one and done thing. It's able to be um, kind of, if you want to put it this way, formed and shaped with the times and with the culture. It has the ability to adapt, to change, and even more than that, interpreters of it have the ability to read into it what is not readily apparent or what wasn't originally intended by the writers. Now, do you see where we're going with this because the other side of that argument and debate is you have those who aren't bought into the living document view and that is to say those who read the constitution read it as a static Document. That's not to say that they think it's perfect, but they read it as this. What did the writers of the Constitution have in mind when they wrote this? And today, the one of the biggest issues is the Second Amendment. What did the writers have in mind when they penned the Second Amendment? And the argument is on you know both sides of that spectrum they meant this therefore this is what the second amendment is all about period end of story or the other side says no they may have meant that but today is not the 1700s it's 2019 we need to see how this now applies to today or how it doesn't apply right there's a dynamic pursuit on that side and a static pursuit on the um on the other side and that's really what the um, debate and the reading of the Constitution 
is all about. It's a argument. It's a debate. It's a pursuit for meaning, for interpretation, and how one interprets is going to, on the one hand, bring about the consequences of life, of worldview, but also it's important to note that all these examples are not people walking in on neutral ground, but it is people that have a worldview, that have a presupposition or presuppositions, and they are reading those into the Constitution. That Second Amendment example, if I am, if I am highly in favor of guns, that is going to be a presupposition that affects my reading of the Second Amendment. And the same is true on the other side. If I am highly opposed to guns, if they scare me, if I don't like them, if I don't want to be anywhere near them, if I don't like the idea of people having them, that is going to have a bearing on how I understand the Second Amendment as well. There's no escape from that. Now, that's not a right or wrong issue, but it is a reality that we have to be aware of. Now, there's an intersection here between the Constitution and the American government and the Bible in Christianity. Again, we're talking about governing documents. And if you notice, they call the Constitution in that um, debate a living document. And when they say living document, what they mean is the ability to adapt and change and to shift with the cultural norm. Now, that reminds me of a passage in the Bible. That passage is in the book of Hebrews. And I want to read to you what that says. This is found in Hebrews 4 in verse number 12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I read verse 13 there as well. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now the author of Hebrews there calls the Bible, the Word of God, living and active. Now, I mentioned a little while ago the idea of postmodernism as a philosophical issue um, that still has a bearing on the Bible and the American government. Now, the main takeaway of postmodernism is basically this. It's a rejection of absolute truth. Now, in my mind, it's a rejection of truth altogether because I don't think there are different categories of truth. Something is either true or not. But in that philosophical system of postmodernism, they're rejecting absolute truth or another way to put it, objective truth. So somebody who is postmodern is going to say, that there can, there can be truth, but one truth does not 
trump the other. Everybody is free to have their own truth. Everybody gets a participation trophy, right? The idea of postmodernism in a way that subtly um, creeps into everyday conversations is do what works for you or that's true for you what is not true for me or some kind of variation of that statement. Uh, that's that's a postmodern view or even the, the Bible study um, circle going around the room, say what this verse means to you and nobody's wrong because that's their view. It's right for them. I see it a little bit different, but it's not wrong. It's just different, right? That's, again, a postmodern idea. It's the rejection of absolute truth and the assumption that truth can adapt and change. It doesn't stay fixed in one place. What was true in 1970 might not be true in 2019. Well, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means that that truth has adapted but it doesn't stand the test of time. It, truth changes with time and with culture. That's, that's, the, that's the main idea of postmodernism. But you can see that influencing readings of the Bible, and you can see it influencing readings of the Constitution in our American government, in our political landscape. I mean, and this is important because one of the things that does happen is I see denominations that have taken a highly liberal trajectory and they move and start rejecting very important doctrines of the historic Christian faith. Um, one of them is views on sexuality um, views on marriage, and what is regularly said, and I've heard it, you hear it on interviews, see it on video clips, what's regularly said is some kind of reference to Hebrews 4.12, which we just read, that God's word is living. Now, what they mean by that is exactly what the readers of the Constitution mean when they say the Constitution is living. What they're saying is it has the power to adapt and change with the times. That's what these people are saying with the Bible as well. They say, well, that applied back then, but now we can see that the Bible is going to change with the culture or with the times because it's living. It has the ability to do that. And then they'll normally say something tongue-in-cheek like you can't put God in a box or something like that. Now, the problem with that is that the writer in Hebrews actually means the exact opposite of that when he says the Word of God is living and active. Because the whole scope of conversation in this is to speak of absolute authority. In the book of Hebrews, the argument is being made of Jesus' absolute authority, higher authority than all created beings, higher authority than angels. He is divine, and he has absolute authority. And then he moves in here to talk about the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. Now, it's a little bit 
disappointing because I think a better English translation of what's being said here is that the Word of God is life-giving and active. Or another way to say it is that the Word of God has the power of life within itself. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. A a good kind of reference to that would be in Psalm 119. If you've never read it, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, but it's really uh, devotional because the writer, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 119 is just giving a deep adoration of God's Word. And he says this in Psalm 119, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. So there's an example um, that God's word is life-giving. I think the same idea is being communicated in Hebrews. But it's really important because in the book of Hebrews, when the writer says that the word of God is living and active, or again, I think a better reading is the word of God is life-giving, he's actually making the argument that there is no higher authority than the Word of God. It's life-giving. You go back to think about Genesis 1, when God created the heavens and the earth. When God said, let there be the Word of God, there was no higher authority to challenge His command when He created the heavens and the earth. God spoke, and it happened. God spoke, and all things came into existence because he is the highest authority, and his word is absolute truth. There's nothing to challenge it. There's nothing to outdo it. There's nothing to put it down. There's nothing to overthrow it. God's word is absolute truth, and God's word is possessed, possessing full authority within itself. And that's what's being said about the word of God here. The word of God is living and active sharper than any two. Just notice the language here of authority, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, God's Word is absolute truth. God's Word is the highest authority. Now, what's being said here is not that God's Word is living in the sense of adapting and changing, but that nothing, again, it's the exact opposite of that, that nothing can come up to challenge its authority. Nothing can come up to overthrow its truthfulness because the Word of God is the highest authority, period. And that's so important for us in our conversation of Bible interpretation. And it's also a confusing issue because those who would tend to see the Constitution as a, quote, living document mean the opposite of what the writer in Hebrews means when he says that God's Word is living. What he means is that it doesn't change and won't change with the times, But what the readers of the Constitution mean is that the Constitution does change and can change and will change 
with the times. And again, when people talk about the Bible changing, they will regularly cite this verse in Hebrews trying to give the same idea that the living document constitution people are giving, but they don't realize that when the writer in the book of Hebrews says this, he means the exact opposite of that. So it's really important for us to understand. But the Bible and the American government both have a commonality because interpretation of the Bible and Christianity and interpretation of the Constitution in the American government both come down to an issue of meaning, of interpretation of the right scheme and the right method of interpretation. And this is very important because those questions do arise, um, just as I had mentioned earlier with the Constitution, uh, is the meaning of this amendment, for example, found in what the reader says or what the writer meant? Remember the, the idea about the the founding fathers, the ones who crafted the amendments, should we read them? Should we read the amendments and wonder what did they mean by this? Or should we read our own meaning into it? Now that could seem like a rather harmless issue because after all it is the Constitution. It's not a perfect without error document like the Bible is. But if you apply that to the Bible, suddenly we have a big issue. Is the meaning of the Bible found in what the writer intended, which is at the ground level, Paul, Peter, and the others, and then at the highest level, ultimately God himself, the author of all scripture, is meaning found in what he intended or is meaning found in what I think it should mean? An example of this would be, let's just say that I wrote a letter to my wife. I wrote a letter to my wife. I'm telling her how much she means to me, and then maybe it's just not necessarily a love letter. It's just a kind of normal everyday letter, like a text message or an email, and I'm telling her some of my thoughts, what I think about certain things, and I give that to her. And let's just suppose, for the sake of illustration, that my neighbor across the street somehow gets that letter. That would uh, bring a whole set of issues of how in the world my neighbor got this letter. But for the sake of the illustration, just follow with me. Let's say my neighbor gets the letter, reads the letter, and then publishes a book about the letter that I wrote to my wife. Now, is my neighbor free to write a book about the meaning of the letter? the interpretation of the letter. Well, yeah, they're, they're free to do that. I would rather them not, but they're free to. But are they right about the interpretation? Well, it depends. Is the meaning of the letter what I intended, or is the meaning what my neighbor reads into it? Now, I hope you understand the significance of this, and you would say, well, the meaning is what you're the, you're the one that wrote the letter to your wife, so the meaning is what you intended in there. And I would agree with you. 
But the modern-day assumption, if truth is not absolute, if truth is not objective, but truth is subjective, truth can change, truth is based on um, any given moment in time, and it adapts and, and molds and is reshaped again and again, then that means that my neighbor is totally fine to start telling people what I actually meant in the letter because he reads in his own meaning into the letter, and he's fine to do that because truth is an absolute anyways. And obviously that's a huge problem, and it's a huge problem if we take that approach when we're trying to read the Bible because if truth is not absolute, if interpretation is really just a matter of what I think and what you think and what everybody else thinks and everybody's right, nobody's wrong, and everybody can just kind of have their own pursuit of it, then really the, the Bible's no different than the fortunes that we find in fortune cookies. You open those up, they're so generic, they can apply to basically anything. You take them and make them your own in your own circumstance, your own life, and the whole pursuit of interpretation goes out the window. And really, this is one of the things that we have to understand. If truth is absolute, and if the Bible is true, then we should pursue the interpretation of the Bible any opportunity we get. And we should use all the tools of interpretation that are available to us, such as historical background, word studies, different translations, a respect, an understanding of different genres in the Bible, because we care about truth. We care about what God has to say. It's not a matter of if you're kind of a Bible study nerd. It's not a matter of if you're an academic type or not. It's a matter of if truth is important, if what God has to say is important. If it is, then we should seek to interpret the Bible with the utmost diligence, right? Be one who's not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly interpreting it, handling it, seeing the significance of it. But again, if truth is not objective, if truth is not absolute, then it really, those who are reading into the text anything that they want to, and this is what it means to me, mentality, then really they're wasting their time. In, in fact, Bible interpretation is completely impossible and meaningless if truth is not absolute. Because anything that somebody says about the Bible really doesn't actually matter. If it's not absolutely true, if truth isn't absolute, then what I have to say about what Genesis 1-1 means makes absolutely no difference. Because I can think that, you can think what you want, somebody else can think what they want, we can all contradict each other, and it doesn't matter, everybody's right. But I hope that you see that that is clearly not the case when it comes to the Bible. God's Word is truth, God's Word is the final authority, and if we respect it and see it as such, then we should seek to interpret it. We should pursue Bible interpretation with everything, because it matters what God has to say, and He's revealed it to us so that we would understand it. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation about Bible interpretation and a little bit about politics and the American government, and I hope maybe it'll even 
kind of give you a new alertness to uh, conversations about the uh, amendments and all that kind of stuff because you'll kind of be um, your radar will be going off when it comes to ideas of interpretation. And I hope that'll maybe give you even a stronger sense of alertness when you're reading the Bible because we're all engaged in interpretation when we're reading it. But speaking of interpretation, next week, just to whet your appetite a little bit, um, now that we've talked about interpretation of the Bible, I'm going to introduce to you the two major interpretive systems in Christianity. And not to leave you with a cliffhanger, those two are dispensationalism and covenant theology. We've interacted with those two ideas a little bit in uh, previous episodes, kind of a while back now. Um, But I'm looking forward to... um, kind of diving deep into these two uh, because they are opposed interpretive systems, and I hope to um, show you which one is better than the other. Uh, But we're going to start all that conversation next week. Um, But for now, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening. I appreciate your um, engagement with this show, and um, have a great rest of your day, and God bless you.